Good evening, everyone. <laughs> the obligatory response. I love it. Um, well, in our short time tonight, and as Smokey is taking a little bit of a break from these first Sunday devotionals, I figured I would take a break from the book of Philippians and instead just offer a brief word of encouragement and hope and assurance. And to do that, we are going to be looking uh, briefly tonight at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's funny, um, as I was uh, listening to Pastor Greg this morning, one of the many, many helpful things that he said was the reminder that Jesus was so clear in telling us that this world is not our home. This world is not our home. It wasn't the home of the apostles. It wasn't the home of the first century church, and it isn't our home either. And in our text tonight, Peter is writing to a group of believers for whom that reality is probably top of mind. This is a persecuted group of believers who are being persecuted precisely because they are aliens and sojourners in this world. And so it's no surprise that Peter opens this letter with a word of encouragement that points them away from the world and points them to their future in Christ. And this is what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, are by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In these verses, Peter is pointing these suffering believers to the certain blessings that they will inherit when Christ returns. That's where Peter wants their focus to be. After all, life is hard. Life is painful. It is adversarial with the world, and it is tainted with sin. For Christians, for us to persevere, to avoid despair, to endure what we must, how we must, and to do so for the sake of Christ— We must live today for tomorrow. We have to live today for tomorrow. This world is not our home, as we should be looking forward to and living for our certain future in Christ. And in keeping with that, our goal this evening is to make three short, simple observations about what Peter says about our future hope. And if you're inclined to take notes, those three short observations are, number one, our hope is worth our focus. Our hope is absolutely worth our focus. Number two, our hope is Christocentric. It is all about Christ. Our hope is all about Christ. And third, our hope is guaranteed. Our hope is guaranteed. And that's our subject tonight, which we will jump into right after asking the Lord for a blessing on our time. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for this evening. Thank you for the opportunity to dig into this word. I pray, Lord, that you would make this a time of encouragement and joy for this church. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, as I mentioned, we're going to jump into it because time is short. Our first observation is that this hope that we have, our future, it is worth looking forward to. And we see this mostly uh, indirectly in this passage. Uh, In verse 3, after a statement of praise, Peter begins by saying that God has mercifully caused us to be 
born again. He has literally begat us again. And our being born again is the very beginning of our salvation. It precedes our repentance. It precedes our faith. In fact, we only do those things because we have been born again. Being born again is the entry point into our salvation. And then after saying we're we're born again, Peter then talks about uh, being born again to a living hope. And if being born again is the starting line for our salvation, then this living hope, this hope is the finish line. Being regenerated by God is the start, but it is not the end of what God is doing. God's saving work in our lives is in service to a goal, to a future outcome. Being born again being forgiven, being justified, that is declared righteous on the basis of Christ's perfect life that he lived on this earth, those things are not the totality of our salvation. They are the initial steps, the first fruits, the down payment of what is yet to come. And stop and think about that for a second. If if all of these amazing blessings that God has graciously, undeservedly given us are the, the first steps, the, the, the down payment, the, the first fruits of what God is doing in our lives. How much more glorious is what he has yet to do in our lives? For us, the best is literally yet to come. And if it wasn't, if all the good stuff was in the rearview mirror, Peter wouldn't be opening this letter pointing these believers to their future. The future is what is best for us. But it's, it, it, the best is yet to come for us. And so we should be, first point, first observation in this text, absolutely focusing on it, living for it, desiring it. It should be something that is at the forefront of our minds at all times. And that is absolutely part of Peter's point here. Now for our second observation, and I promise these are going to get longer as I go, um, but for our second observation, let's notice that Peter describes our hope as Christocentric. It is, in other words, all about Jesus. Now, Peter says that we are born to a living hope, and I don't think that living is some playful adjective describing the quality of our hope or the strength or endurance or vitality of it. Our hope is living because our hope is Jesus Christ himself. And that is, by the way, exactly how Paul talks about our hope. In 1 Timothy 1.1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. In the New Testament, the word hope can be used one of two ways. It can be used in a subjective sense, a subjective sense, in which case it refers to our experience of hope. It's the, uh, our actual confident expectation of the thing that we're looking forward to. But it also can be used in an objective sense. It can refer to the thing that we're hoping for, the thing that we're waiting for itself. And in this text, Peter is using it in that second sense, in that objective sense. To show you that, just take a quick look at verse 4. Notice that verse 4 also begins with the word to, if you're using an ESV. And grammatically, the to in verse 3, born again to a living hope, and then born again to an inheritance, Peter is making these, these are parallel phrases. Um, If you were to cut out the resurrection stuff, what Peter actually says is, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, to an inheritance. He is making these parallel concepts uh, so that he's telling us that he's really describing, you know, the the two things in the same, or uh, one thing in two different ways. This hope and this inheritance are really one thing described in two different ways. And since an inheritance is an objective thing, it's not a subjective experience, that leads us, I think, to the conclusion that this living hope is objective as well. Which brings us back to the word living. Our hope is living, and I think he spells it out for us right there in the text. 
because it's a person who has been raised from the dead. We have a living hope because the resurrected Lord is our hope. Our hope and inheritance is Jesus Christ himself. After all, this glorious future that Peter is calling his hearers to focus on, when does it occur? It occurs when Jesus returns. It's ushered in when the bridegroom returns for his bride. And when he comes back, all of the utterly undeserved blessings that we will experience, they're all tied back to him and they're all tied to our relationship with him. And to give you a couple of examples of that, one of the best known things that's going to happen when Jesus comes back is that we are going to be transformed. Paul talks a lot about that in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, He talks broadly about what our new bodies that we will inherit will look like. Uh, In fact, in verses 42 to 44 in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, he uses words like imperishable and glory and power. Uh, The new bodies will be raised in glory. They'll be raised in power. We'll have these undying, glorious, powerful bodies. And that makes perfect sense because in Colossians 3, Paul tells us that the bodies that we will receive are actually a sharing in Jesus's glorified physical existence. Um, Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4, Paul says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Notice our relationship with Christ and our focus on the things that are in the future, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And then the relevant part, when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. What what we are going to be as Christians is what he is. Our resurrected bodies will be just like his. Another example in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses 11 to 12. In that passage, Paul tells us that just as Jesus will reign over the earth as Lord, so too shall we reign with him. Paul says, it is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. And if we endure, we will also reign with him. Uh, We will participate, in other words, in his rule over the earth. And I hope you see the theme so far. The blessings that we get when Jesus returns are all tied to him. His rule is something we participate in. His body is the blueprint for our bodies. Our future is all about Jesus. I can give you one more example, and this one is from 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 to 3. This is uh, 1 John 3, 2 to 3. And I give this example not only because it, it links, again, our future state with Jesus, but also it reminds us what the greatest blessing is going to be when Jesus returns, which is deeper fellowship with Jesus. So in John, 1 John 3, 2 to 3, he writes, Beloved, it is not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Now, we will see him just as he is. Why? Because we will be like him. Again, there's that link between our future and Jesus again. But the goal that John is focusing on, the goal that he's encouraging his readers to or hearers to, is the fact that we will see him just as he is. And that's the the ultimate blessing. Seeing Jesus fully is tantamount to saying that we are going to have so much more capacity to know him, to enjoy him, and to fellowship with him without the limitations that we now experience. And so, brothers and sisters, yes, our hope is entirely Christocentric. It's Christocentric because our future is ushered in when Jesus returns. It's Christocentric because the blessings that we inherit are all tied to Jesus and our relationship with him. And it's Christocentric because the chief blessing, the chief joy of our inheritance is an eternity with our beloved 
The future for the Christian is glorious because of our glorious Savior. And Peter wants us to know, he wants us to understand that our hope isn't just worth our focus, it's also all about Jesus and our union with him. Now, fortunately, not only do we have a Christ-centered and Christ-enabled future that is entirely worth our devotion, our focus, our joy, but we also have a future that is entirely assured. Our hope is guaranteed, and that is our third and final observation from this text tonight. Look with me at verse 4 again. While Peter, again, begins using the word hope in verse 3, he shifts to the word inheritance in verse 4 and beyond. Now, an inheritance, in order to get one of those, is really dependent on two things. It's dependent on the thing itself, and it's dependent on proper management of whatever you're going to inherit. In other words, if you're going to inherit something that is subject to decay, or if the thing is mismanaged, your inheritance can be lost. If my family owned a large plot of land, the land itself, the resources, the animals it support, whatever, that would be my inheritance. But land can become barren. Animals can die or be stolen. Rivers and streams that make land fertile can be redirected or dried up. Those things aren't permanent. And moreover, I only get my inheritance when my father or parents pass away. Till then, it's under their care and control. If my parents were to gamble away what they have, if they were to fail to defend it from robbers, or uh, if they were to fail to take care of it, going back to the land example, and let it go to rot, I no longer have an inheritance. And Peter's point here is that unlike an earthly inheritance, our inheritance in Christ is, as he says, quote, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That's the language of permanence. And that makes sense. If our inheritance is Jesus Christ himself, it cannot go to rot. It cannot diminish in value. It cannot change one iota. So not only is our inheritance permanent, Peter goes on to add that this inheritance is being kept in heaven for us. And the word kept here refers to someone who is guarding something. Peter is, is essentially saying that God has definitively set this inheritance aside as a guaranteed thing for us. Unlike my, say, earthly father who can lose what I might inherit, my heavenly father has deposited my inheritance in an impenetrable fortress waiting for just the right time to give it to us. Now, Peter does have one more thing to say, and that's because I left out one of the three ways, in point of fact, that you can lose an inheritance. So you can lose it to decay, you can lose it to mismanagement, or you can lose it because of yourself. There's one other way that an inheritance can be lost, and that is that I can lose it. If I were to go to my father and tell him, I don't want to be your son anymore, I mean, if I was to part ways with him entirely, he could cut me off from my inheritance. A son can always be cut out of his father's will. And that's a scary thought, right? Precisely because I know me. I know how bad and unfaithful and easily tempted I am. I, if anything, if anything could cause me to lose out on this earthly inheritance, surely it would be me. If it depends on me at all, I have reason to fear, which is why it is so great that Peter makes it super clear that just as no outside force can take away this inheritance, neither can I somehow lose it. And that's what we see in verse 5. Peter says, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Now, 
when Peter says uh, something is being guarded, the, the question is who? And the answer is it's us. We are. I am. We're the ones being guarded, not the inheritance. God, in verse 5, it, with his infinite power, is zealously guarding us. And he does so, Peter says, through faith. And we need to pause there just for a second. I really want to make sure this point is especially clear because it's so easy, and I did this for years myself, to misread, misread what Peter says here. It is so easy to read the words through faith and interpret that as to the extent that I believe. It is so easy to make faith the condition upon which we are being guarded here. But if that's what Peter had wanted to say, he could have said that, and he didn't. It's clear, both I think in context and grammatically, that the faith that Peter is talking about is the tool that God uses to guard us, not the basis for our protection. I think a fair paraphrase, in fact, of what Peter is saying here is that God is protecting us by keeping us believing. God isn't protecting me to the extent that I believe or because I believe. He is protecting me. He's protecting you by keeping us believing. What Peter is saying in verses 4 to 5 is that our inheritance isn't something that may or may not be available. It isn't something that can be mismanaged. It isn't something that is subject to change or to failure or to corruption. And it isn't something that we can lose. Peter is reassuring these suffering saints that our inheritance in Christ is secured, certain, and guaranteed. Peter's point is that we can rest assured that what God began in regeneration, he will certainly finish. What we are waiting for will be there, more glorious and more wonderful than we can imagine in Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, these three observations that our future is worth our focus and our joy, that it is utterly Christocentric and that it is certain, that it is guaranteed, is what gives us the strength to persevere, to avoid despair in the face of, of trials or persecution, and to, adore, to endure what we must, how we must, for the sake of Christ. And as such, our job, in light of what Peter says here, is to live today for tomorrow. Or, to quote the Apostle Paul in Titus 2.13, the lives that we live on this earth are to be lived waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, I know that was brief, but my hope and prayer is that this passage and what Peter says here, our time tonight together, encourages you to do just that this week, to live today for tomorrow. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your, thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for the grace that you have given us in the Lord Jesus Christ and the assurances that you have spoken through your apostles, Lord, in the word. We are a people who are prone to all sorts of, of sin and forgetfulness, Lord, and it is so easy to take our eyes off of what matters and to focus it on this world and this earth and our time and our circumstances and our pleasures and, and comfort. And I just thank you, Lord, for these reminders to, to lift our eyes up, to lift our eyes up to, to where Christ is and to what he will bring to us when he returns. And I, I thank you, Lord, not only for those reminders, but I also thank you, Lord, for the reassurance that for all those who belong to Christ, this is reassured that you will begin what you have finished and that we will in no way be disappointed or put to shame those who have hoped 
in Jesus. And we thank you for your blessings. We thank you for your grace in Jesus' name. Amen.